0: Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at Squeezed.com.
1: This is the inner guru, the inner guide. This is your own true self for who you are when you finish with all of your clinging to this and that, you are a being of pure love, pure compassion, pure wisdom, pure consciousness. You are perfectly present. And anytime you need a friend to hang out with, sitting in your heart the size of a thumb, is undoubtedly the grooviest friend you could ever have.
2: Hello, amazing community, and welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now episode. This is number 241. And it's from an interview that Ramdas gave to a local radio station in Santa Cruz, California in October of 1977. And it was just after he had participated in a conference called LSD, A Generation Later, which featured Albert Hoffman and Timothy Leary and Ralph Metzner and many other luminaries in the early psychedelic scene. And it's so great to hear this lecture because the psychedelic scene is in this sort of renaissance right now with so many incredible studies happening. You know, one of the most famous is the MDMA studies looking at treatment resistant PTSD. Um, It's through MAPS and they're currently in phase three and have extended access clinics, which I'm fortunate enough to be a part of one here near Asheville, North Carolina. But the phase two studies just showed extraordinary results with about sixty-seven percent of PTSD patients no longer meeting the criteria for PTSD, and about eighty-eight percent experiencing significant symptom relief a month later. But that's just one of many studies. You know, there a few years ago, a study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine highlighting the benefits of psilocybin uh, with treating depression. And other studies looking at the benefits of psilocybin on people with terminal cancer and the relationship to death and dying. And um, then there's the great work of uh, Roland Griffith, who recently passed. And he was the director of the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at John Hopkins. And he looked a lot at spirituality and psychedelics. And there's so much more because it's been shut down for so long and there's this opening that's happening, it sometimes feels a little bit like the wild, wild west. Like what's going to happen? Where is this going? You know, like will we be following a psychotherapy model? What's going to happen with the pharmaceutical model? What's happening with the indigenous cultures and that the spiritual um, aspects of it? And then this question of integration, you know, everyone talks about it, but what does it mean? Is it one or two follow-up sessions um, with a therapist? Is it this, what I like to think, this whole like community of supportive souls that you continue to walk this journey of consciousness with, sort of like what was imagined in Aldix Huxley's Island or sort of researched in Brian Murarescu's um, The Immortality Key. And all I know is as we're navigating this, this renaissance and this world and all the permutations of it, um, I often wish that Ramdas could weigh in as one of the OGs of this movement. And this lecture, though it's not the whole picture, you know, is an incredible start. So I'm really grateful for our team for finding this and, and putting it out into the world. Um, and I'm not going to give any of it away, um, but I do want to let you know, That, you know, it's more than just psychedelics. And at the end, he ends with a um, contemplation meditation. So hopefully you're in a place where you can do that meditation. And if you're not, then, you know, come back again and listen to that part at another time when you can really drop in deep. And then come to our discussion about this episode. If you don't know, um, about a week after every lecture or every episode drops, we try to get together as a community and just discuss what came up for each of us in these episodes. Um, and this one, I'm sure, is going to be really juicy. So you go to ramdas.org slash fellowship to sign up for that. And just so you know, because there's so much to talk about when it comes to this topic, Um, We're actually starting a a second group that's going to focus specifically on psychedelics and consciousness starting in January. So when you go to sign up at ramdas.org slash fellowship, make sure you're checking the boxes that you want to be involved in, whether that's the general one that meets every two weeks or if it's going to be the psychedelic and consciousness one or one of our many other groups. All of those are for free. If you've gotten this far into the intro, then it probably means that what Love, Serve, Remember Foundation as an organization, what we do actually matters. And we do a lot and we do a lot for free. Not only are we the umbrella for the Be Here Now Network, you know, putting out this podcast bi weekly as well as 19 other podcasts, but we also have. This free resource library on our website where you can just go and find all sorts of articles and lectures by Ramdas. Um, we have a 24 7 lo fi radio station on YouTube. We have so many YouTube videos that come out um, on a regular basis. And then, you know, we have all of the social media channels that we attend to so that all sorts of people can find Ramdas, you know, from Instagram to Facebook to TikTok to all the rest of it. And then we have these face-to-face community gatherings. We have several a month and they're all free, which is really unusual in this day and age. Most organizations uh, put face-to-face contact behind a paywall and we don't. We just want people to come. Um, And then we also do these courses several times a year where they are by sliding scale or you know, unlimited scholarship because we just want people to come. We just want people to be able to be touched by Ramdas, And it takes a lot to do that. You'd be amazed actually at how much it takes because there's all the technology from like sound engineering each of these episodes to categorizing and cataloging and organizing all of the incredible amount of lectures that he gave. Um, to this tireless and really heart centered staff that you know is engaged in all of the mediums that are necessary this day to reach people, and so, like public radio a few times a year, we need to ask for your support so that we can keep doing this so that others can keep receiving these teachings so if Ram Das has touched your life in some way if you 've listened to one of these free podcasts or you've gone to the resource library, or you've come to one of our virtual gatherings, or even if you've read his books, please give back. Or as I like to think, actually pay it forward. So the next person whose heart might be touched or life expanded by discovering the teachings of this amazing man has that option and opportunity. So, you know, we would love if everyone could give thousands of dollars, um, but we're also touched if you can give $20 because every single cent counts. So to do that, Go to ramdas.org slash give. So go to ramdas.org slash give and you can just make a straight donation. We're also trying this new peer-to-peer model. Um, So if you want to become an ambassador and do like your own little fundraising campaign, that option exists as well. So thank you. Thanks for being a part of this community. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Thanks for supporting all that we do. And may what we do continue to be a service for you, as well as the millions of others around the world who are touched by this man. So, as always, we hope you are nourished by this episode and these teachings. And whatever good may come from it, may it benefit all of us in our daily lives and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. So, here is Ramdas, here and now.
0: If the, originally, you started out as a Harvard professor, that's right, right? I think, uh, how long ago was that? It was before the beginning, or no, it wasn't that long ago. 58, 1958. 1958. And uh, he underwent a transformation that uh, was assisted by uh, a number of events that occurred to him, including uh, some chemical enlightenment and some traveling that he did. And uh, perhaps you'd like to tell us about it, maybe in your own words, a little bit. I know this is probably an old story for you you've probably replayed this tape many times but uh it's always good to hear it with a new frame of reference
1: good morning reverend (laughs) right (laughs) Um, well the frame of reference is usually defined by who it is i'm talking with and assuming i'm sharing this with the Santa Cruz University audience Um, I should say it from the way it would be relevant in that direction Um, I did a very straight educational trip and uh, took a PhD at Stanford in psychology taught at Stanford University of California Berkeley and at Harvard and I was a Wheeler dealer and entrepreneur and power player and research giant and dynamic teacher and all that kind of stuff and that was all beautiful. I mean there was a lot of reward in it and uh, but the relationship with the students students aren't there necessarily to get what it is you teach, and the whole motivational structure of university is a little complicated. Everybody is sort of playing their part, and uh, there wasn't a great deal of fulfillment for me in the long run in being in a university. Um, ultimately, I, even though it was all just the way it was supposed to be on the blueprint about being successful in academia. I was experiencing a kind of um, despair depression feeling of um, finiteness of the whole trip and um, I probably would have just kind of uh, done that for about 40 years ended up as a kind of a senior professor at Santa Cruz being um, kind of a nice guy and uh, a gentle teacher Kind of a mr. Chips person. I think Because I wasn't really a very scholarly person. I was more just like a charming teacher But it turned out that down the hall from my office was a kind of a rascal of an Irishman by the name of Timothy Leary and uh, Timothy took had great compassion. And he took pity on me and um we used to be drinking buddies and then we became psilocybin buddies and we started a research project into psychedelics after he had been to mexico and i met him down there i had uh, gone to mexico to pick tim up in my little cessna 172 and we were going to fly across south america but when i got to mexico to uh, tepizla tim had already been flying with psilocybin and that flying made the rest of the flying seem irrelevant so we never got beyond uh and tapitzlan and um finally with people like aldous huxley and gerald hurd and alan watts and uh lots of really charlie mingus and paul desmond and maynard ferguson and miles davis and Poets like Charles Olson and uh, Allen Ginsberg and Bob Bill Burroughs and uh, uh, Scientists physicists uh, Not many politicos a few journalists quite a range of people we were experimenting with uh, what these uh, consciousness-altering substances did to your head and They did a tremendous amount to my head because what they showed me was I didn't really have to settle for what I was settling for the problem had nothing to do with academics the problem had to do with the way I was doing academics and uh, all I had to do was start to do it from another place that is a perceptual shift and that's what psychedelics allowed me to set aside my traditional way of looking at things and see things from a new way So I did that for five years, I guess. I got thrown out of Harvard for doing that. And we had centers in Mexico, we got thrown out of Mexico, and we had a center in the Caribbean, we got thrown out of the Caribbean. We are expatriates of numerous countries. And we settled in a place called Millbrook, New York, in a 63-room mansion on a piece of land owned by the Mellon family and there we set up our psychedelic enterprises our training center and uh i was there for a couple of years i guess with tim and ralph metzner we did the psychedelic experience while we were there had uh before that we had our foundations the first one was freedom center then we had ifif the international federation for internal freedom then we had Castalia, which those of you that are Herman Hesse fans will appreciate. And uh, then I left the scene. Tim later had the League of a Spiritual Discovery and numerous other things. But I left and I became a traveling roadman on the psychedelic circuit, mainly debating with FDA people like Sidney Cohen. He and I did a book together called LSD, paperback. And that went on until about 66 or 7. All the time I was earning my living as a computer programmer and research designer for the school mathematics study group which was National Science Foundation supported. And I was doing that at uh, Stanford. And then uh, 67 I went to India with a guy who had been a um, Built a big company called Basic Systems, and then he sold that to Xerox, and he made five million dollars. And he took me to India, <laughs> among other things, because I had turned him on originally to acid. Just the loyal kindness of a, a connection to a connection. And uh, in India, we traveled around and looked and looked, and then finally, I came to meet my guru. Who was just a very very far out gentleman old guy in a blanket on a wooden table and uh that was in 67 and for the past 10 years this november is the 10th anniversary of that meeting for the past 10 years um i've really just been um absorbing his being dying into him whatever that process is it's a definite process because what he represented was everything i took drugs to become he was free his mind didn't hold anywhere he was uh he was a statement of love of compassion of presence he didn't want anything from me. he didn't want my money he didn't want me to hustle for him he didn't want to be famous he uh he was really light really light and uh we don't have any uh, teachers like that in the West that we know of because these kind of guys you don't know of because they don't do a trip to be known. Most of those of us that are teachers in the West are kind of hustlers. We're nice hustlers, but we, we do good things, but we are hustlers. And uh, But he was really laid back, very, very beautiful. And he touched my heart. He touched a place of purity in me that... Our culture really doesn't allow to come forward very much sometimes when you're out in the woods, you know and you Hear a bird sing and it's such a precious sound that you don't want to breathe even because or you hear a deer comes near You or something like that and it's as if you're in a relationship to something so innocent and so pure And almost otherworldly that you you just breathless and that's the feeling I have about my relation with this man so for ten years I've been um, hanging in that's been my major method I've learned a lot about meditation because I saw that the major game I had to do was quiet my mind open my heart and uh, get my body together hatha yoga for my body and and, um, quieting the mind is a big deal and I've spent lots of time and I take training from all kinds of different disciplines Buddhist Sufi Hindu Christian and uh, then I share what happens to me with other people and other people seem to find that they're going on the trip along with me and so there's a big sharing going on among us and everywhere I seem to go I find other people who seem to be at the same place I met so obviously what's happening to me is not unique it's happening to a lot of you that are listening in and the way it happened to me is just the way it happened to me, And the way it happened to you is your unique way. And that still allows us to meet here in lightness and love and presence and awareness. and the um, the conference was a um, a very, very pure happening in that sense. It was a, a useful and powerful happening. I mean, it was just, I'm sure, The probabilities of those people all appearing in the same place, as you point out, is very, very slim indeed. And uh, I was there because I happened in my van, which I just float around in, to end up in Santa Cruz, and heard two days before that there was going to be a conference, and that's how I happened to be there. And I'm sure everybody else had equally as dramatic explanation of what they were doing there. Um, The the way the thing that is interesting about that conference just as a mark of what's happened to us since a lot of us have been taking psychedelics or took them for many years was that we could meet although we have all these different um, ways in which we're manifesting we met with more lightness than one might expect for people with as many differences as that I mean there were some people were very much into the political part of it some people were very much into the pharmacological some into the social political some into the consciousness but uh we seemed to give space to each other i thought i thought there were very few people on the panel yesterday that reflected being caught in their trip that heavily there were some but they weren't that they weren't that percentage wise as many as you would expect on a panel of quote experts in any game
0: right yeah what um could you say to me about uh like a thing that was uniting all those people there the, the experience they shared in common was the psychedelic experience and uh i'm sure everyone on that panel and uh with maybe exception of i don't know i don't think there's anyone on the panel that hasn't at least tripped on lsd at least once or sometimes many times and uh what kind of uh comment would you have on that like what role do you see lsd playing or has it played in the uh spiritual awareness of people
1: well it certainly got a lot of people high (laughs) it um what the what the key thing that LSD that I'd say did I guess it still does for a lot of people but it certainly did that was that it took a a um, what was really a very homogeneous value system in the culture in other words a system in which it was like what Einstein did to Newton It took a reality that everybody treated as real and absolute, which was kind of a liberal, intellectual, cynical uh, one in which um, scientists and professors were the high priests of the society and so on. And it really, uh, it just sort of undercut the whole game um, by showing that that was just another reality. What it does is it it sets aside your habits of seeing the universe and it allows you to re-perceive the universe with innocence in a fresh new way. Now, that was what it did for most of us. And by setting aside the overbearing nature of the reality we'd all been taught, we all started to experience many realities that were there and available, but we couldn't notice them other planes of consciousness other ways of seeing the universe and seeing ourselves seeing energy seeing patterns of energy seeing light and so on that we couldn't see because we were so caught up in the one we were caught up in lsd allowed the breakthrough what happened then was that that breakthrough into many realities got transmitted through i think in this culture primarily through the rock and roll movement actually Mm and um because that was the psychedelic key to the mass market really because the musicians were turning on and then their lyrics and their music was playing with these realities so that the beatles for example and bob dylan and people like that i think had a very profound effect on the culture because now suddenly um, 12 13 year old kids in small towns who would never have an opportunity to take acid, were suddenly being, instead of uh, having a Frank Sinatra record, which would take them back into the reality they were used to and just keep playing with that one reality, they were dealing with these many uh, realities. I mean, uh, the, uh, the rock movement I think. Uh, I know that back in the early 60s when I was around the Haight-Ashbury a lot, we had the Oracle and we had the first B and the, you know, the Panhandle and all, and the dead were still working for handouts and things were very fresh. Uh, you could feel the transmission, the, the way the media, the whole process, the way the underground was working, the whole psychedelic movement taking shape. And, um, and music was playing a very key part in that and that whole process now it's a different matter because that information about relative reality is a part of everybody's consciousness not everybody but really a significant part of the culture has already bought it and so um, the way in which psychedelics are used now is a little different it still has that freshness for an individual the first time but what happened was a lot of the social institutions for taking acid changed and it became more in the model of um super sensual experience in other words the drug got socialized in the same way that marijuana got socialized when marijuana first appeared many years ago people were freaking out there were hospital cases there was the same thing there was with acid and people were having profound mystical experiences now you take uh, many people smoke a joint to go to the grocery store. I mean, it just has lost its uh, its profound significance. And in the same way, my work with LSD was to plumb the depths of my being. Others use it in order to um, sort of groove for the afternoon. It's a little different. I mean, uh, I found that if you if you take a chemical and then go and live around a lot of structured forms especially where there are other people with whom you're not totally straight so there may be any paranoia at all or any place where you're holding stuff in there's a part of you that has to turn off and that causes that is using up the drug if you will to keep yourself down right (laughs) Uh, And that is a little bit of what's happened with psychedelics people don't really understand the kind of work We were doing about set and setting that the setting in which you take a drug really makes a difference a lot of people do they go out in the woods and They lie under a tree or by a stream and that's a beautiful way to do it My guru said to me you can take that stuff. He called it yogi medicine, but do it when you're alone when you're peaceful when your uh, mind is turned towards God and when you're in cool space, and those are quite a set of criteria.
0: Yeah, I, I remember one of my first acid trips, uh, a few years ago I was in Berkeley, and it was my first uh, time I'd ever gone to Berkeley. So I didn't know what to expect, but I expected uh, something like a lot of uh, mellow hippies laying around and a very mellow atmosphere. And uh, what actually turned out is it was rush hour at lunch, and there was all these people heading down a telegraph uh, for their, uh, you know. And what I was super conscious of was I picked up all of the, you know, the, the vibrations from these people that they were sending out was, oh, I have to hurry somewhere, I have to spend money, I have to get food. And it was like it was infecting me because I was so sensitized being in this state of awareness that all of their thoughts are sort of flooding my mind Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get to that clear space that's so helpful. And I finally, I was with a friend, I said, we got to get away from here, let's find some place where we can sit. And we went up on this hillside and in the woods and, and sit on a log. And I just sat there for a while and just closed my eyes and tried to regain my composure. And uh, when I felt the inner peace returning, I looked out through the trees and I was looking back down at Berkeley. And... My head started going through all these permutations where I started understanding that sitting up there on that hillside looking down at Berkeley was very much the role of a a yogi or a, a guru or something. You have to get yourself away from society and look back on it as though you were an alien arriving from another
1: planet or something. Until you get to the point where you can be right on Telegraph Avenue at lunch hour and you are as if you were on that hill. Right. See, then you're free. When there's nothing in you that's grabbed by all that stuff, then though you're in the middle of a whirlwind, you're so calm inside that it doesn't get to you. It's not that you've turned it off, it's just that there's no hooks in you for it to hang on. Okay. Just the littlest paranoia in you would be enough to hang that whole scene on and make you want to flee for the hills. Right? <laughs> So all this stuff shows you is how you have to clean up your act. But many people don't use it to clean up their act. They just grit their teeth and bear it and just figure, well, that's life, you know. And mm-hmm. I guess they're growing. I'm sure it's an evolutionary process, even if they think it's not happening, you know. But uh, it it is a throwaway of something very precious by treating it so ir- irreverently. I mean, we wanted to make it a sacrament in the same way that the Eucharist wafer is. But um, the uh, Kool Aid experiments of Ken Kesey, which uh, started in San Jose, actually the first acid test, that redefined the game. That he just escalated the whole thing, up leveled. Just as we were about to make it a sacrament, he made it into uh, a um, kind of a um, a street. Um, sort of a, uh, a street trip rush, um, freak out, far out. I mean, it was much more a guts ball game, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's beautiful and horrible at the same moment because a lot of people who could have had much more profound connections with higher places than themselves have never had it through acid. And they don't even know it's possible through acid. Uh, you know they've had moments but they weren't ready for it and the scene wasn't wrong and they freaked and they pushed it away and they went rushing back into something to bring themselves down
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's um it's a trigger i think is one way to use it and you can use it to uh trigger a fireworks display or an enlightenment or you can use it just to blow your mind and it's It seems like there's a difference between using it as a kind of a recreational drug or, like you say, as a sacrament. And a lot of people do use it for a recreational drug. You know, they Mm -hmm. take acid and drink beer and smoke joints and, uh, you know, go
1: out and party. I don't knock (laughs) recreation and fun. I think that's great. Yeah. I just think that it's like... um it's like having a jet plane and then sitting on the ground and using it to go to the grocery store. I mean, it's just an underuse of something very, uh, very profound. And when you heard um, Albert Hoffman the other night, who was the fellow that originally found LSD, and I think it was a very uh, impressive that he came to the university and spoke and was honored properly for his part. Um, and the way in which he went off to the Mexican mountains with his wife and with Gordon Wasson, Gordon Wasson, by the way, was a vice president of the Morgan Guarantee Trust, and he married a Russian lady who was a collector of mushrooms, and that started him on his whole mushroom venture, which led to the uh, uncovering of the Tiananactyl, the flesh of the gods, which is psilocybin, and they going off into the mountains in a very reverent and way, and meeting Maria Sabina's, and getting their experience through a, a very time-honored ritual. It's just like when I sit in the peyote church, the Native American church, and take peyote, and there's a roadman and a fireman and so on. You can feel the exquisiteness of these rituals for allowing the chemicals to touch places in yourself that you wouldn't touch were there no ritual. And uh, we in our zeal to level everything... And and because so many rituals that we grew up with were phony, we've had a hard time building rituals that are uh, that we can invest in, we can invest love in and faith and compassion in.
0: There's one quote that um, I've often heard from people who are connected with uh, a Buddhist methodology that um, is a, says that life without devotion to a guru is an empty path. And I was wondering what your feelings were on that. Is that, you think it's really necessary to devote all your attention to one person for a certain length of time in order to have this kind of fulfillment in your life? Or can you just sort of, you know, go through life and, and get information from many sources and sort of integrate it in your own way? I mean, is that a path you think that's necessary for many
1: people or what? Um. The process of awakening um, The process of awakening is uh, One that must a journey that must be taken um, Really alone It um, it must be taken in such a way that you have to tune to deeper and deeper places inside yourself To hear what you have to do next and there really isn't any rule of the game as to what is absolutely necessary what is necessary for one person isn't necessarily the right thing for another for example in Theravadan Buddhism southern Buddhism as opposed to Mahayana Buddhism they talk about the teacher as being the Kalyan Metta which means a spiritual friend and that's really the role of the teacher as a spiritual friend merely somebody to pass on information about how to do the thing that's very different from a, um, a Teacher who has a definite transmission that you must get from that teacher not just information, but a, a spiritual transmission Some people will get that transmission directly Not from via another human being by participating in a method And they'll just become meditators and the meditation will take them through the various states of consciousness and they will get the transmissions that way and they'll never have a a personal guru that's a certain kind of a yogic path and uh, uh, it turns out that for most of us or for many of us there are very subtle holdings of the ego where we can't see them ourselves and we can almost take most methods and socialize them and get them so that we can Hang on to our trips and still do the method and There are a lot of meditators with big egos for example And in that sense, it would be nice to have somebody around that's got it It's like a mirror that's clear that'll get you to cut out all your shit and just get straight You know just sort of cut through and it's just useful. It's very useful to have a teacher um, it's not absolutely necessary, but it's certainly uh, I find it very helpful extremely helpful And I often just sign up for these 10-day meditation courses Or I'll go sit with Suzaki Roshi where they beat you with a stick if you don't you know <laughs> sit straight and uh, they just take me and they just pummel me and they keep confronting me with uh, unsolvable problems koans and then every time I don't solve them, they all laugh at me and make me feel like a fool. And all my big ego that builds up from being somebody keeps getting undercut. And I, I pay them a hundred bucks to have them do that to me. And I'm delighted that they do it. I mean, I uh, it's like, I guess people who go to Werner Earhart and he calls them all an assholes. I guess that's roughly the same thing. Yeah. Uh, that I just like to have the stuff undercut in me. And teachers are good for that.
0: Yeah, it does help to clear out a lot of stuff that can build up over time. It does indeed, yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, one um, thing, I think it was, uh, was it, no, it wasn't John Lilly, it was one person on the panel, oh yes, it was Alan Ginsberg, who's referring to the, the kind of state that you reach when you're in a psychedelic condition or you're, in a high space where it's, you know, emptiness is form, form is emptiness. And that kind of uh, feeling is, is, you know, like you're alone in the universe on one level and yet you're totally a part of it so you're never alone really, Mm -hmm. it seems to me is one of the most profound messages any person can really receive, the existential awareness that we're limited beings, that we have a beginning and an end, and that we have a consciousness band that
1: is limited makes us all alone in some ways. Well, after a little while, maybe before we stop today, we'll take maybe uh, five, six minutes and we'll do a meditation together. And I'll do a directed meditation. We'll go into those spaces together. That would be fun. start to work with the silence it's fun to tune a radio to silence and let the words just appear and then disappear focus on the silence whatever sounds you hear in your room the radio. They're all just part of the passing show. Let them come, exist, and disappear like clouds passing through the sky. Bring the attention, your awareness, to the middle of your chest, right in the middle. Where did that come from? That's beautiful. (laughs) Passing show. Another sound. In fact we should fill the meditation with the unexpected so it'll grab you push you you will let it go come right back to the space again back to your heart make believe you have nostrils in the middle of your chest and with every breath you take with your nose assume you're breathing in your chest and out your chest, deeply. With each out-breath, just keep letting go of stuff. As Don Juan instructs Castaneda, let go of your personal history let go of yesterday and last night let go of all your guilt each breath out if there are really heavies in your life feelings of inadequacy heavy love affairs failures bad relations with people at this moment don't cling to it just breathe it out let it go And then when you breathe in, imagine that you are surrounded with the most delicate substance of light. It's almost like a mist, a spiritual mist. It's like the living spirit. It's the living waters that Christ talks about. And so with the in-breath, drink that in through your chest. And let it pour and wash through your body, every part of your body. And then in the out-breath, just let go of any heaviness that it dislodged. It's like flushing out your system with Drano or something like that. Just breathe in this very delicate mist, pour through you. Then breathe out all the heaviness. Breathe it out of your shoulders, your abdomen, your pelvis, your arms and your hands, and your neck, your forehead and your facial muscles. Feel it all loosening. Relax. Relaxed and yet perfectly aware. Perfectly aware. Deep, slow, Any thoughts which come to your mind let them go breathe them out along with the out-breath any feelings sensations memories plans this is only going to take five minutes you can set aside five minutes out of your busy life just to connect with a place of no place to get behind your your mellow drama just keep the focus in the middle of the chest breathing in breathing out now we'll go on a journey together Imagine there is a being sitting before you. The being is radiant, sitting like you're sitting. The being is filled with light coming from within it. The face of that being is compassion itself. you are looking upon this being it is so beautiful just imagine it just play with your imagination now as you breathe in allow that being to pour into your heart and turn around so that it's sitting right in the middle of your chest maybe it's about the size of a thumb the middle of your chest a being sitting right inside you great wisdom great compassion great humor great peace now let that being start to expand until it fills your body That is, its head is just inside your head, its arms inside your arms, its legs within your legs, its torso within your torso. You have become the skin that surrounds this being. Feel this being inside. It's wise. Simple. Full of love. Compassionate towards all things. Very peaceful. Full of light. Now let this being continue to expand. Taking you with it. starts to grow larger it fills the room you're in its head comes out through the roof the ceiling let it get larger and larger and larger until it's a giant giant being who sits high his head its head her head high above the University of Santa Cruz and who sits deeply in the earth. Within this being is all of the activity and people of the university. The being is so peaceful, so present, so light. It's growing bigger. Now its head is up in the sky. Among the planets. It's grown to the point where the earth, the entire earth, is within its belly. It sits in space. Loving. Calm. Peaceful. Present. Compassionate. growing larger still until everything you can conceive of all of the galaxies all of it all of the planes of consciousness are all within this one being within you feel it all within you feel the tides and the movement of the planets, the changes of climate, the atmosphere, the concepts of gravity, life and death and growth and decay, all within you. You look within yourself with compassion and you see how it all is and from where you are you feel peace and equanimity and presence. You are the Ancient One. You are that One for whom there is no second. The entire universe is within you. You are pure consciousness. Now, Let even that vast one start to become permeable and disintegrate until there is neither one nor not one. There is neither form nor no form. There is no place to stand No concept to hold on to. For a few moments, in silence, hold on to nothing. Now very gently. Into the huge one and then slowly let that one diminish in size ever remembering that it's full of peace love compassion equanimity wisdom until the head of this being is just sitting above the ceiling of your room and the bottom is sitting just beneath. You are this being. Now you look within yourself and you see within you this tiny being that is who you thought you were when we started this process. Just for a moment, look at that person. Look at their mellow drama. Look at their fears and hopes and doubts, loves, pain, suffering. See it all for what it is the karmic unfolding of a being in evolution who has taken birth on the physical plane. With your mind, touch this being. On its heart with your fingertip and give it your blessing bring to it the wisdom love and the compassion the compassion to allow it to be what it is and to understand that like an elm or an oak gnarled or straight it is perfect in the eyes of God now very gently let this large being diminish again until it is just the shape of your body and then let it diminish once again until it is the size of a thumb in your heart and keep this being in your heart this is the inner guru the inner guide This is your own true self for who you are when you finish with all of your clinging to this and that you are a being of pure love pure compassion pure wisdom pure consciousness you're perfectly present And any time you need a friend to hang out with, sitting in your heart the size of a thumb is undoubtedly the grooviest friend you could ever have. In India, when we meet and part, we say Namaste, which means I honor that place within you We are, we are one. I honor that being within you. So, thank you for sharing. May I say namaste. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.